Welcome to this episode of Like a Glove, the startup podcast about product market fit. I'm your host, Pat East, and we're recording here in the podcast studio from The Mill in Bloomington, Indiana. And today's guest is Chelsea Linder from G-Beta. Hi, Pat. Hey, thanks for coming down. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So tell us, what does G-Beta do and what do you do specifically for G-Beta? Yeah, so G-Beta is a pre-accelerator for early stage companies with local roots. So the G-Beta programs in Indiana are all focused around companies that are based in Indiana. And I'm a managing director of G-Beta, so I manage G-Beta programs across the country. Right now we have 19 G-Beta markets um, across the country in Toronto. G-Beta has really been expanding quite a bit in the last one or two years. I mean, originally yeah. it started in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, right? In in Madison, Mm -hmm. right? And is slowly but surely started to spread across the U.S. Yeah. So when I started working at Generator, which is the company that runs G-Beta two years ago, I think Indy was the fourth or fifth market for G-Beta. So in two years, we've gone from five to 19. Five to 19. That's awesome. (laughs) So you probably have product market fit if you're able to expand that quickly, right? I think we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. Well, let's kind of get into some of the questions I had about product market fit. You know, now that we're talking about it, I'd like to talk a little bit about product market fit for G-Beta and kind of how how you guys got there. So uh, let's start off with what's your definition of product market fit? Let's level set us. Yeah. So the way that I typically explain it to a startup when I'm trying to explain product market fit is you have to prove whether the dog will eat the dog food. And that's really what it comes down to. So who are the people that are going to pay for and use what you are making and, and selling? And do you have like a really specific handle on who those people are and how to sell to them? So you want to make sure the dog eats the dog food. And so how specific do you get with, to continue the analogy, how specific of a breed do you want, right? Is it like any old dog? Is it a a male Irish setters? uh, So here's a funny thing I just realized. All of our examples at Generator are like dog related. Really? So so you all love animals. That's great. We have like a G-Dogs Slack channel. Yeah. So we frequently use this example of a dog conditioner or dog shampoo company. And especially when we're talking about market, um, this is one that we use a lot. And the the example is like your target market, maybe it's like poodle owners who compete in the Kennel Club of America poodle competition. There's like 64 of them in the whole country. And that might be like your exact target market that you're going after. And then as a startup, your goal is to have like that vision of a longer term growth where you can then expand to all poodle owners who want, you know, their poodles to have software. And then you can expand to all dog owners from there. But the idea is to start as small and niche as you possibly can and really who's feeling the pain the most of the problem that you're solving. And then you can kind of expand out from that target market to a bigger market as you go. So that initial market, beachhead market or foothold market, um, you want to find the folks who have the biggest pain, who feel it the most. That's who you want to start with. Absolutely. Gotcha. Yeah. How small is too small for an initial beachhead market? Yeah, I definitely think that you need to be able to make money. So you need to be able to cover like that customer acquisition hurdle um, and lock, and balance that out with the lifetime value of the customers within your beachhead market, or at least know, especially since we're talking about product market fit, that there are more than just that initial beachhead market that will eat the dog food, so to say. You need to be able to like prove out that you actually have good unit economics and potential for revenue generation, et cetera, within that beachhead market. 
And so by unit economics, you mean? You can sell it and make money. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Great. Great. And so at the very beginning of a startup, you know, you want to find product market fit for the folks who are having the biggest pain in the market. You want to understand what the the CAC is and the cost for acquisition. You also talked about lifetime value to make sure lifetime value is greater than the CAC. How do you know what the lifetime value is if you're at the very beginning of the cycle? It can be really hard to figure out. A lot of it is just kind of guessing and using the data that you do have to make an educated and data-driven guess, not just, you know, sticking your finger out. So typically what we'll say is we want to see that your customer acquisition cost is less than three times the lifetime value of your customer. Did I say that right? I think less I did. Less than three, so one third? Yes. Right, yeah. okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, if you have that as your starting point, you can try and do the math and figure out, okay, well, if as of right now, this is how much I'm paying to acquire a customer. And that times three equals this amount. Does that seem like a number that is relevant and could be the lifetime value of a customer or is that way off the mark? And if it is way off the mark, then what do I have to adjust to make it seem more doable, whether it's on the marketing spend, et cetera, getting that customer acquisition cost down or figuring out how to make the lifetime value of your customer higher. So there's a lot of ways that, especially at the beginning, when you have the luxury of being able to experiment with your pricing, experiment with your revenue model and all of those things, you can kind of try and fudge it around until it seems like it'll make sense. And so at the very beginning, when you're trying to figure out your lifetime value and you don't have a ton of data to actually say, here's the lifetime of a customer, your CAC needs to be at least one third of whatever your lifetime value is. And you're really just kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, on first blush, does this make sense? And then you can kind of adjust things along the way. But what I heard is it's important to just say, here's the line in the sand and then we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Gotcha. So you work with a lot of startups. I mean, every cohort in G-Beta has uh, five, five. You're doing one to two cohorts, I think, for every city every every yeah. year. And so you've got literally hundreds of companies. Yeah, that... I think in 2020, we're going to be working with over 300 startups through oh, wow. the G-Beta program. That is so, amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, you're working with those companies. But even to find those companies, you've got to screen hundreds more. Yep. What's the most common mistake you see startups making about product market fit? I think just trying to boil the ocean, like trying to sell their product to literally everybody. That's obviously not the most effective way to go about it as we've been talking about. And so I really want to see a company that is clearly thinking about that beachhead market or target market and knows who really is feeling this pain the most that they're solving and how they're going to specifically target those customers. Like we were talking about having a lot of data or, or knowing a lot long term is difficult when you're a really early stage startup. But if you know exactly who's feeling the pain the most, that's the best place you can start. So in your mind, how does a startup figure out who has the biggest pain? Is it because they have their own domain experience and this is the pain I felt? Is it, hey, I don't have any domain experience in this industry, but this is what customers said. Is it a mix of both? Is it is it something else? How, yeah. How do you know what the pain is? It definitely has to be a mix. So I really want to see domain experience in any founding team of any startup. I think it's just it's a key to being able to build a successful startup. But you can't just rely on your own opinion in a vacuum. You have to be asking your customers and getting their feedback 
all the time, every day. So it definitely needs to be a combination of those two things. For domain experience, what's the right level of domain experience so that you know enough about the industry that you understand a problem, but you probably don't have so much domain experience that you start to get blind to, okay, this is how the industry could work differently. Is there kind of a a sweet spot for amount of time in terms of domain experience? I don't think there is. I think okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think like knowing something is better than knowing nothing. Knowing a lot is probably better than that too. But I've worked with founders with all different levels of domain experience. I think the key and something we talk a lot about at Generator is do you know something that nobody else knows? And can you use that to your advantage as you're building your startup? What's the insight that you have that nobody else has? Yeah. Gotcha. Does this common mistake of trying to boil the ocean, I mean, does it does it change from industry to industry? Do you notice any patterns? Is it more prevalent in software or non-software? What does that look like? I think it is a little bit more prevalent in software because it's easier to take that kind of a broad approach when you're selling software, when you don't have to think about manufacturing and having enough stock and distribution and all of those things. I think by way of all of that being such a big process and something you have to think through so much, a lot of more physical product type companies just can't try to sell to literally everybody all at once. So I would say in my experience, it's been more common with software companies. And so the the companies that have more cost, the, these product or durable good companies, you have to think through more of those steps, right? Because your gross margins aren't like 85 or 90% like they are in software. Exactly, and yeah. So you feel like, okay, yeah, I've got to figure out what my beachhead market is and then, and then start to move up market from there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you could tell software companies one thing that seem to have this recurring problem of trying to boil the ocean. I mean, what's the one thing you might say to them to kind of get them out of the mindset of trying to boil the ocean? I mean, how do you, yeah, how do you get them into, okay, start small. I know you want to start big, but how do you, how do you get them to start small? It can be hard. It definitely (laughs) depends on the founders. Sometimes it's as easy as just saying like, look, you can't, you can't boil the ocean. You have to try and figure this out. Sometimes it takes a lot of work and convincing to do that. I think where you start to see the shift, the mindset shift is when they start to see success in the sales. So if you can really get them having successful conversations in sales, then they realize, okay, it makes sense for me to really target the people that I'm going after and make sure that each one of them is going to be a valuable use of my time. So they need to see, I mean, just like anybody, some evidence that, okay, yes, going small actually isn't really going small. It's helping me make more progress faster. They need to be able to see some tangible progress and that you're not leading them astray. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. It can be really tempting to just be like, here's my thing. Everybody in the world can buy it. Doesn't everybody love my product? This is so great. Why doesn't everybody buy this immediately? Yeah. (laughs) Who doesn't make this mistake of boiling the ocean? I mean, you talked a little bit about product companies before because they have bigger costs, but is there a, a mindset or a type of founder that usually doesn't make this type of mistake where they where they automatically start small? Experienced founders, of course. Um, so if you've already done it once, you probably learned this lesson. And then I do, I do think that people who started out with making this startup because they're solving a problem for themselves tend to want to find like-minded people who are dealing with the same problem. And I think like, for example, Wes Winham from Woven, he's a really good example of that, where he was really acutely feeling a problem that he wanted to solve and he wanted to go like find 
all his friends who were feeling the exact same issue and sell it to them. And he had such a good targeted approach from day one about who he wanted to sell the product to. Wes Wenham from Woven, what did they do? Woven is a developer hiring platform that makes like work samples. And then um, the developer applicants can do those work samples for the companies. And they just receive a lot more accurate information about the qualifications. They help companies find diamonds in the rough. These developers who are really good, but maybe their resumes uh, don't look like they're good. Is that fair? For sure. Okay. In full disclosure, I'm an investor in Woven, a two-time investor. I love Wes and his team and everything they're doing there. Um, He's really, I mean, the whole team, but but him in particular is just super smart about how they're being systematic about how they grow the company and how they're doing sales development in particular and how they're doing their customer acquisition. It's just all very, very impressive. Yeah, it really is. They were in our first cohort of G-Beta and Indy too, so. And so did you know they were, I mean, they're not successful yet. I think they have some seeds of success. They just raised a million dollar round and they're starting to really ramp up their sales quite a bit. Could you tell that they were going to be successful in that first cohort or do all startups look equally horrible at the, at the very beginning? <laughs> I mean, there's always the ones you feel really good in your gut about. And I would say that Wes and his team, because of the domain experience and t- technical skills that they have, I knew that they were the team that could, if anybody could do it, it would be them. So I definitely felt confident about them from day one. And one other thing that I really like that they did was they truly thought about their software company. It's a SaaS company. They truly thought about it as a software, as a service company. They were doing everything manually before they started building all the software. And for three engineers, that is not what you would expect them to do, right? You would expect them to sit in a room for two years and build this and then and then release it to the public. But they, they did it completely the opposite. They did everything on Excel spreadsheets and mm-hmm. they figured out, okay, here's what the, the decision tree looks like for finding a good developer versus bad developer. And then they implemented that by hand, right? Yep. Yeah. yep. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that again, like they just really knew that they needed to be getting communication and feedback from their customers from day one and that it didn't make sense to build something right away until they knew exactly what they needed to build. I think they had a benefit in being developers and knowing how much time and effort goes into building a product like that and that they didn't want to have to do it twice or, you know, more than twice. And so their their domain experience really led them to this insight of, okay, resumes of good developers don't always look those resumes just don't look good. So it led them to this insight of, okay, how do we find good developers with bad looking resumes? Were you the one that coached them on, hey, you need to really figure out how to do this manually first? Or did they just kind of figure that out on their own? I think they were already doing that when I first met them. Um, So they were already pretty much ready to start acquiring customers right when they got into GBetas and were looking forward to starting to really accelerate the growth of the business, which is why I think the G-Beta program was a good fit for them at that Mm -hmm. time. Gotcha. So Woven is a really good example of good product market fit, or certainly they're they're getting there. Uh, Without naming any names, can you maybe talk generally about a company who's had bad product market fit and maybe some of the mistakes they they made along the way and, uh, you know, why they didn't pivot or why their pivots were unsuccessful? 
Yeah, I've definitely worked with some companies that were struggling to find product market fit. Sometimes a couple of the examples that come to mind are research-driven startups. So maybe an invention-based or research within a university that um, was, you know, a person, again, with a lot of domain experience who was who just like found out something cool or invented something cool and wasn't really starting with that nugget of trying to solve a specific problem. And then even then, I think it can kind of get like built and start trying to be commercialized without ever talking really to a customer. I've had a couple of those types of companies go through our program and talk to customers, talk to other mentors and advisors, realize that maybe they weren't taking the right approach. I even had a company that did that, majorly pivoted, completely tried a totally new business model, a totally new customer segment, everything, and still didn't really hit the nail on the head. And so now they're just kind of trying to figure out what their next move might be. And so for these research companies that maybe couldn't figure out how to find product market fit, it, it sounds like, you know, if you're doing research, you've come up with an insight into the product itself, but maybe you don't have an insight into how it applies to the market. Is that yes. is that yeah. fair? Mm-hmm. And so how would you, you know, for these folks that are in research institutions like IU, who were, you know, just literally blocks away from campus. How do you coach them on finding product market fit? How do you say, okay, you've got this really great insight into the product or this particular part of research, but nobody's going to buy it unless you figure out kind of what the insight in the market is. Or are these folks just kind of stereotypical academians and they just only want to focus on doing research and academics for that own sake? I think you can spin it and make it seem like it is research for its own sake, right? So you can say like, all right, we're going to do customer research now. I think I-Core is a really great example of how you can frame this for an academic perspective. It's just like, all right, we're going to programmatically go and talk to 100 potential customers or more in a really short period of time and get as much feedback as we can and figure out how that's going to drive the business forward. So there's definitely ways that you can kind of frame it so that it fits within an academic mindset. But if it is a founder who's more focused on the business side and maybe isn't as as research driven, then it becomes a lot easier yes, for sure. sure. Yeah. I, I love that idea of kind of framing the work of finding product market fit as more research because, I mean, it really is more research, but you know, certainly for that type of mindset. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like yeah. that. Um, well, let's shift a little bit to a subset of product market fit and talk about market size. So for your beachhead market, I mean, you've talked a lot about, hey, it needs to be small or not necessarily small, but these folks need need to have the biggest pain point, right, mm-hmm. of anybody you're targeting. And that's probably going to be a small market. And so how do you make it small enough that you can target enough of the right folks to give you feedback on that product market fit and they have the biggest pain point, but not so small that you turn off investors who, for obvious reasons, want to see larger markets because that's going to mean larger returns? Yeah, I definitely think it's important, like I was saying at the beginning, to be a visionary and to know the long-term plan and be able to put that in front of an investor from day one, even if it might change. So to be able to say, this is who I'm targeting right now. And these are the reasons why demographics, geographics, whatever the reasons are. And then here is why based on my data or my educated guesses, these are the next five markets I'm going to go after. This is what I see it turning into long term. Uh, That's the way that you can tell a story to an investor and show them that the returns are there and that the, the market size is big enough at the end of the day for them to get the returns they're looking for. 
And so in an earlier episode, I talked with Jason Whitney from IU Ventures about the same thing, how we often see a market size slide and it starts off really small and it gets bigger over time, but we haven't seen um, many founders, or in, at least in my case, I can't remember any founders talk about kind of what they're going to learn at each market, in each market, how they're going to transition and kind of what that timeline looks like. And so is this something that you teach in G-Beta that, you know, you need to have a plan for how you're going to progress from market to market? Is that something you teach? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can't just say you're going to do something. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but I do think that when it comes to a pitch, it can be hard to just fit a lot of that information in, especially if you have a time limit like five minutes, you know, but definitely I think on the back end, there has to be a lot of thoughtful process around how you're going to go from one to the other. When do you know, when do you know that you have gotten enough of one market to be ready to move on to the next one? That's a really hard question to figure out the answer to. And then, uh, like you're saying, what can you learn differently or new information that you can gather from each market as you go that can inform the product as you move forward? And so that question that is hard to answer of, okay, when do you transition from one market to the next? Yeah. How, how do you answer that? Or do you just kind of have a, uh, a best educated guess? And if it changes, it changes, but at least I've said something. Is is that what you're looking for? Definitely. Again, I think when you're a really early stage startup, you have the, the ability to experiment and try things. And if it doesn't work out, I think, your investors want to be there to help and they want to give you advice and be mentors. And so if you come to the table and say, hey, I tried this market and it's not working out, I need to pivot. Or I said I was going to stick in this one market, but I'm not really feeling like it's working out. Let's try this other market. What do you think? They want you to get the returns at the end of the day. So they're going to try and help you get through that. That's a really good segue into my next question. If you don't have product market fit, how do you know that you need to change your product, you need to change your market, or you need to do a little bit of both? Yeah, you definitely need to be talking to customers and even people who aren't your customers yet, but maybe are in those other market segments that could become your customers. The only way you can ever figure this stuff out is by getting customer feedback. So you just have to keep talking to people. And so if you talk to customers, one thing I've always thought is that they're kind of a self-selected bias group, right? They kind of already like you. So if you're trying to change your brand or trying to get feedback on what you can do better, like there's only so much they can give you. So I've always thought it's better to go after folks who aren't your customers. Yes. How do you find those folks and how do you get them to talk to you? It totally depends. We use a lot of different strategies. So everything from like depending on who you're looking at, you could just need to go stand out on the street and ask the people who are walking by, right? Um, Or it might be a little bit more scientific than that. So maybe you need to go on LinkedIn and find everybody with this kind of title or everybody who works at this kind of company and just cold reach out to them and be like, hey, I'm building this product. I'm looking for feedback. I would really love to get 15, 20 minutes of your time to get your feedback on what I'm doing. And I think people get nervous that nobody's going to answer them or be willing to do that. But everybody, I think it's human nature to want to help. And so if you're not trying to make a sale, if you're not trying to ask for money, people are a lot more likely to be like, yeah, sure, I'll totally jump on the call for 15 minutes and and talk to you about what you're doing. And so one tactic is literally just to go on LinkedIn and find similar titles to your existing customers, right? Mm -hmm. And then search for them and and just cold email them or, or cold reach out. And is there anything specifically you say in the in the email or the the LinkedIn message to to convince them to do this other than 
hey, I'm just, I just want 15 minutes of your time and, and I'm not trying to sell you. There's like really specific things, like just including three specific times that they can pick from, um, make it super easy for them to opt in. It's really funny how often if you just give three specific times, people will be like, oh yeah, I'm available at Tuesday at four or whatever. And if you say like, let me know what works for you, then they have to do all this work. They have to do the work, yeah. yeah. So it's easier to just like not make them do that work. So there's really granular things like that, that, that you can do. But I really think the key is not asking for anything but feedback gotcha, and gotcha. not even on the first call. Like you have, if you want to sell to them eventually, that's great, but really focus this part on getting the feedback and, and building the relationship. Gotcha. So make sure that whatever you ask for, it's truly, no, I want customer feedback and not just a quick bait and switch into yeah. trying to get a customer. For sure. Okay. The last question I have is what's the single biggest thing folks can do to get better product market fit? I think I said this like 500 times. <laughs> Talk to your customers. Gotcha. <laughs> Make sure you're solving a real problem. Uh, and if you're not sure what problem you're solving, talk to people and figure out if if what you've made, what you've come up with does solve a problem um, that you can kind of plug it into retroactively like we were talking about. So maybe that was my next to last question. So I've got a couple more out of that. So everybody always says talk to customers, but a lot of times folks don't do that. They are afraid to talk to customers because they, you know, they've been working on this thing for so long, right? They're they're kind of, you know, they don't want their baby to be released to the world just yet. Um, um, sometimes folks say, well, yeah, I know what all these customers are going to say already, right? I've talked to five. Okay, what are the next five going to say? Probably the same thing. For folks that are reticent about getting customer feedback, how do you convince them that, that this important thing is really worth doing and that it's not just some platitude that every startup mentor says, oh, of course you need to talk to more customers. <laughs> how do you really convince them that this is something you have to do? Yeah, so I come from a user experience background. So this has some been something that's been just like hammered into my head for such a long time that I I have a hard time imagining a world not, the way yeah. you don't do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but I think that in those scenarios you can think about the fact that all of these relationships that you're building, all of these potential customers that you're talking to are potential customers. And so this is potentially a sales activity. If you are able to build those relationships and really show that you respect the person and their their feedback, then it's a much easier sale at the end of the day because they already have a relationship with you. They already feel like they have a little bit of skin in the game with what you're building. So it's not it, it's never a waste of time because eventually they could become a customer. Eventually it'll lead to something that right. that will be a little bit more tangible to your business. Yeah. Gotcha. For sure. Well, that is great, fantastic, fundamental advice. I appreciate it. That is it for this episode of Like a Glove. Chelsea, tell us how we can reach you online. Absolutely. So you can email me. My email address is chelsea at generator.com. It's G-E-N-E-R-8-T-O-R. Everybody spells it wrong. Or you can just look me up, Chelsea Linder. You can Google me. You'll find everything. <laughs> awesome. Great. Chelsea, thanks for coming down today. Thank you. Like a Glove is a production of The Mill, a co-working and business incubator space in Bloomington, Indiana. Our mission is to launch and accelerate high-potential companies, and our vision is to become the center of co-working and entrepreneurship in Indiana. You can learn more about The Mill at dimensionmill.org. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check back every other Monday for new episodes.